welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the need for reform to our gun laws through the lens of the recent mass shootings, of course, but also through the fact that support for various reform measures reaches as high as 90% approval in the U.S., making it one of the most stark examples of our broken, unresponsive, non-democratic government. Clips today are from NBC News Now, The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, Vox, The Rachel Maddow Show, Deadline, Counterspin, The Tom Hartman Program, Breaking the Sound Barrier with Amy Goodman, The Takeaway, and The Chauncey DeVega Show. The shootings in Atlanta and Boulder are part of a specific category of violence that experts had hoped we had left behind during the pandemic. There were only two public mass killings of strangers in 2020, both before major lockdowns. That's down from nine in 2019 and 10 in 2018, according to an Associated Press study. The pandemic seems to have slowed these shootings down. And that makes sense, because FBI data found that most such attacks happen in places that we have not been gathering during the outbreak. And with that slowdown came another effect. Criminologists have shown that one shooting often inspires another as the perpetrators strive for notoriety. The pandemic seems to have broken that cycle for a while. But don't be misled. The narrow way that some define public mass shootings obscures the fact that 2020 saw an incredible uptick in gun violence. In fact, if we define mass shootings instead as four or more people injured but not necessarily killed, 2020 had the most mass shootings in years. Comparing countries can be difficult when we're talking about mass shootings because one event in a small country can skew the data. But even when you look at large continent-sized populations, the U.S. still stands alone on this issue. What sets the U.S. apart? Well, the big factor is gun ownership. The estimate is that as of 2017, Americans already owned nearly half of civilian guns in the world. Then, in 2020, Americans bought a record 23 million guns. That's a 65% increase over the prior two years. What about mental illness? The stereotype is a madman with a gun, but the reality is likely much more complex. One study found that fewer than 5% of people killing others with a gun had been diagnosed with a mental illness. An FBI study found that most shooters had struggled with their mental health in some way, but that most shooters also had an average of at least three separate stressors in their lives, from financial strain to conflicts at work or school. But it's hard to study this stuff. There is no national registry of gun ownership, for instance. And for 20 years, Congress effectively prevented federal agencies like the CDC and National Institutes of Health from meaningfully studying gun violence. They do have new power to do it now, as of 2019. Several national studies are underway. For now, as we emerge from the pandemic and resume something like normal life, the question here is whether we're going back to this terrible brand of normal as well. Yesterday was another grim day for America when a gunman walked into a Boulder, Colorado supermarket and killed 10 people, including a police officer. This story is unspeakably tragic, and I cannot imagine for a moment 
the grief of these families and this community can be approached with words alone. The only suitable way to honor these victims is with action, but our government continues to do nothing. Now, due apparently to pandemic shutdowns, it has been a year since there has been a large-scale shooting in a public place. Now, we've had two in the last week, Boulder and Atlanta. Evidently, the only solution for America's gun violence is putting all of us under house arrest. The responses from gun apologists, of course, have been predictable. The Colorado State Shooting Association released this statement. There will be a time for the debate on gun laws. There will be a time for a conversation on how this could have been prevented. But today is not the time. Why not? That's what they say every time this happens. And that's what I say about what they say every time they say it every time it happens. Even the idea of it being in a groundhog situation is itself a groundhog situation. Remember, Einstein said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. Also, same-day gun purchases. Whose stupid idea was that? Thanks, Einstein. Another gun fetishist weighing in on the tragedy is Colorado representative and HR supervisor for John Wick, Lauren Boebert. Last night, Boebert tweeted, while we are still awaiting important information and details in this case, random public shootings and senseless acts of violence are never okay. Where does she find the courage? Senseless acts of violence are never okay. Implying, of course, that intentional Violence is fine. You know, the kind her buddies plan on parlor. Oh, speaking of Capitol Hill, there was a Senate hearing on gun violence already scheduled for today. And Republicans on the Hill know the majority voters want some form of gun control. So they immediately tried to change the subject. Case in point, Louisiana Senator John Kennedy, who offered this dollop of distraction. I do think we ought to keep this in perspective. Um... What has happened in the last few days, what's happened in the last years, is, of course, tragic. And I'm not, I'm not trying to perfectly equate these two, but we have a lot of drunk drivers in America that kill a lot of people. We ought to, we ought to try to combat that, too. Okay, I'll take that deal. Let's regulate guns the way we regulate alcohol and cars. You got to be 21. You got to pass a test to get a license. You got to have registration and insurance for your gun. If you move to a new state, you got to do the whole damn thing over again, and you can't go out loaded. Later, Senator Kennedy spun a different line of folksy BS. I don't believe we have a gun control problem in America. I believe we have an idiot control problem. Oh, we definitely have an idiot control problem. It's people who don't recognize that this country has long had a gun problem. John Kennedy. So when idiots like John Kennedy refuse to do anything about getting rid of idiots' guns, it's clearly time to get rid of idiots like John Kennedy. And that means voting them out. Every time there's another mass shooting in America, politicians have the same idea. 
Bibles. It's time to require a background check for anyone who wants to buy a gun. I'm one of the Republicans who does believe there should be background checks. It is an open secret that the existing background check system is broken. Oh, I have an appetite for background checks. We're going to be doing background checks. Here's what they want to change. Right now, gun buyers in the U.S. only have to go through a background check at a gun store. But they don't have to go through one if they buy a gun from an unlicensed dealer, like at a gun show or a private sale. But with universal background checks, everyone who buys a gun would have to go through one. Pretty much every American is in favor of this. There's only one problem. Universal background checks won't solve America's gun crisis. But there's something else that might. To understand how background checks work, it helps to imagine two very different people who both want to buy a gun. The first person is dangerous. Maybe he has a history of domestic violence or mental illness. And most importantly, he has a record. And the second one is not dangerous. He just wants a gun for protection or to go hunting or because shooting guns is kind of fun. Before either one can buy a gun, they first have to go through an FBI instant background check. And I mean instant. It only takes an average of 108 seconds to get a response from the FBI's database. That database is made up of records sent in by state police and other agencies. And it's checked to see if the buyer has things like a criminal record, addiction, a restraining order, or has been hospitalized for a mental illness. Under a universal background check system, anyone buying a gun, whether in a gun store or through a private sale, would have to be checked through that database. That means our second person walks out with a gun. And our first person with a criminal record doesn't. Or at least he shouldn't. I've done a lot of reporting on this. We have just seen time and time again that background checks do not stop people who we don't want having guns from actually getting the weapons. There are a couple problems with the background check system. One is that the FBI database is about as outdated as its logo. It's missing millions of records. That's why the Charleston church shooter was able to buy a gun despite having a record. Or why the man who killed 26 Texan churchgoers was also able to pass a background check after the Air Force failed to send his domestic abuse convictions to the FBI. So even with a background check for every type of sale, there's still a chance this guy gets a gun. That's partly why study after study has found that while background checks prevent or make substantially more difficult the criminal acquisition of firearms, making them universal doesn't have any effect on the actual gun crisis in America, gun deaths. A Johns Hopkins study of California where comprehensive background checks were implemented in 1991 found that the law was not associated with changes in firearm suicide or homicide, thanks in part to those incomplete and missing records. The other problem with background checks is that they only look at good people and already bad people. But there is an in-between. The background checks are supposed to catch people who have a record already. It just misses all the people who... I haven't done anything bad yet, but might do something bad in the future. Herman is not advocating for a minority report situation. He's talking about someone like this guy, who's also dangerous, but who doesn't have a record. Under a universal background check system, he could get a gun in 108 seconds. But there's another system that could prevent this. Twelve states in D.C. have gone one step further and established a licensing system. How's it different? Well, here's how it works in Massachusetts. Before you ever go to a gun store, you first have to take a firearm safety course. Then you have to go to the police department and submit an application, give references, and give your fingerprints for a background check. Then not only is the FBI database checked, but all local law enforcement agencies, wherever you've lived, are directly contacted, along with the Department of Mental Health. 
That entire process in Massachusetts usually takes about three weeks. And most people, about 97%, pass. Nothing about a licensing system will prevent a law-abiding citizen from going through the process and obtaining a firearm. That's Dr. Cassandra Kerfasi. She researches health policy at Johns Hopkins, and she's one of the authors from the studies earlier. She says the reason licensing works is that it's designed to do both of the big things background checks fail at. A, to properly identify and screen out people who shouldn't have guns, and B, create a system to reduce impulsive gun purchases. The licensing system is more comprehensive than the one database background check system. So our criminal will be reliably denied a gun. But because it's so meticulous, it also stands a chance of keeping our third guy, without a record, from getting a gun. There are people who may want to impulsively acquire a firearm, for example, to harm themselves or others. And the process of obtaining a license can at least delay that person during that time of crisis or, you know, maybe deter them from getting that firearm at all. In 1995, Connecticut implemented a licensing system. Over the next 10 years, they saw a drop in gun homicides and gun suicides. Compare that to Missouri, which once had a licensing system but got rid of it in 2007. Over the next decade, they had a huge spike in gun homicides and gun suicides. In both states, there were lots of factors involved. But researchers say this shows that licensing works. It's also pretty popular. Among voters who live in a house with a gun, more than two-thirds think that it's a good idea. Ask all Americans, and more than three-quarters support it. Background checks are supposed to stop bad people from getting guns, but they often don't. Licensing picks up that slack. By making sure that people are crossing these hurdles, we just make sure in a much better, stronger way that people are not getting firearms when they shouldn't have them. Remember how this all unfolded. You're forgiven if it has blurred together over the years because of the way these things always resolve. But remember how this how this happened. After after Sandy Hook, Vice President Biden put in charge of a task force which moves with incredible alacrity, incredible speed to come up with concrete proposals for things that can be done to try to reduce the number of people killed by guns in this country. President Obama proposed just what you heard there, universal background checks. Background checks should be run on the buyer anytime anybody wants to buy a gun in this country. 90% plus support for that among the American people. And it's simple. You have to have a background check if you want to buy a gun. That's a simple idea. Overwhelming support, near unanimous support among the American people. But Republicans in Congress, including Republicans in the Senate, are not among that 90% plus, apparently. And they decided instead that they would go for something even lower than that smallest, unambitious, simple goal. Conservative Democrat Joe Manchin and Republican Pat Toomey, both with A ratings from the NRA, um, they said that they wouldn't pursue, they wouldn't allow the pursuit of a simple rule that there ought to be a background check if you want to buy a gun. Instead, they had their own idea and they said they could get it done. They had their own way. They had something that they said they could pass. We wouldn't actually do what more than 90% of the country wanted to do. We instead just do a tiny little piece of it because they said so. 
So instead of that simple thing, saying you have to have a background check in order to buy a gun, full stop, Senator Manchin and Senator Toomey said, no, 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 we think that's a terrible idea. We're against that. We know that more than 90% of the public is for it. We're against it. But we've got another idea. Our idea is that the law will be changed to just say you have to have a background check if you buy a gun at a gun show or on the Internet. We'll only extend background checks that far. Gun show purchases, Internet purchases, that's it. It is hard to imagine a smaller reform. But that is what they said they would do. That's what they said they could do. And so the rest of the country, again, more than 90% of whom just want freaking background checks for gun sales full stop, the rest of the country stood back to let these very serious, very credible senators pursue this basically rinky-dink tiny reform instead, because they said that was something they could get done. And they failed. They couldn't even get that done. Not through the United States Senate. Not even right after the Sandy Hook massacre. Joe Manchin and Pat Toomey were convinced, they convinced the whole political class that they had magic gravitas on this issue to show that the legislative process in the United States Senate can be trusted to work, to do at least the smallest imaginable thing on an issue of overwhelming public concern. They were wrong. They could not even do that one pitiful thing. Not in the U.S. Senate. Not with filibuster rules in place that say a majority vote doesn't count. And so nothing happened in American law. No law changed. Nothing made it through Congress. these moments like for you when you hear about a new set of parents grieving over their loved ones? Just watching your segment before, um, you probably didn't see me because I was off camera, brings me to tears. Because watching the flowers and everything else, it brings me back to Parkland in such a visceral, horrific way. These families are now broken. And, and and to the police officers who are watching, I often, I say every chance I get, gun safety is police safety. So join us in this effort to do something about this epidemic. And to the other families, okay, that were affected, I saw um, the uh, Mr. Mahoney's photo up there. And his daughter had a beautiful message out on Twitter today about how thankful she is that he got to walk her down the aisle at her recent wedding and how she's now pregnant and he's not going to get to meet her her baby. He's not going to get to meet his grandchild. This is the reality of gun violence today. And to those failures on the Republican side of the Senate hearing today who engage in dishonesty and BS, I've had Okay, this is not about the Second Amendment. Stop with the BS. Nobody is trying to take your weapons if you're a legal, lawful gun owner. This is a public health epidemic. We ought to be working together on how we reduce the gun violence death rate, on how we stop these instances of gun violence, and on how we decrease the severity of these injuries when they happen. And if they don't want to join in that effort, then we move forward without them. Let's end the filibuster. 
Fred, you know, I think a lot of people are looking at some legal realities that unfolded in Colorado over the course of the last week. I know you're well aware of this, but six days ago, an ordinance that had been passed banning assault style weapons in the state was basically overturned through a lawsuit. Uh, tell me more about that and what that tells you about the fight ahead for gun safety reform. You know, listen. States and cities across this country since Parkland have done amazing work to pass gun safety measures to protect the people in our communities across this country. And every time that's happened, the NRA has been there filing lawsuits to make us less safe. They are a terror organization that is making us less safe. You can't make up these things. I did literally six days ago. The NRA achieved its goal, and they called it victory for Colorado. That's what they called it. And here we are, 10 people dead, including a police officer, because of what they believe was victory for Colorado. It is time to break the hold that that terror organization has on our legislators and on legislation. It is time to focus on this public health epidemic. It is time to work together to save lives. That is all that should matter right now. Hi, everyone. Pardon the interruption. I hope you're enjoying today's ad-free edition of the show. It's not a special occasion, and I'm not offering a, a special perk of an ad-free show or anything like that. It's just that we don't have any ads to play right now, and it's looking like that is mostly going to be the case for a little while. I was told recently by my ad sales company that the second quarter of the year is always the slowest for podcast ad sales. And that prediction is absolutely coming true for us right now, which got me thinking, maybe I should mention that now would be a great time to sign up for a membership, uh, maybe even a yearly membership. That way you can chip in each year in the second quarter, right when our finances are starting to drop due to the natural ebbs and flows of ad sales. And then I started trying to think of a cool name for people who would sign up to help lift us through this second quarter, but all I could come up with was second quarterbackers, which I don't love, but I don't have any better ideas, so I'm open to suggestions. Anyway, if you would like to back us during this second quarter and hopefully eventually be referred to as something better than a second quarterbacker, if we get some good suggestions, head over to bestofleft.com slash support for all the details. And thanks in advance so much for your support. When we hear about horrible things like the killing in Atlanta, in Boulder, and all of the places that we could name, there's a tendency, journalistic and maybe just human, to seek more information, more details. What were the circumstances, the motivations? Who is this individual? Somewhere along the way, one gets the sense that the problem of gun violence is too complicated to address. You know, whatever measure is being suggested wouldn't have prevented Atlanta, you know, and, and that's somehow not a reason that it's not enough, but a reason to abandon the whole project. You know, I, I'm wondering, first of all, does pushing past that hopelessness call for a different way of thinking, new goals, or or maybe just clarity about what our goals are? 
You're absolutely right. There's really this sense oftentimes in the press that this problem is just too hard, that we already have 400 million guns in circulation and there's nothing we can do about it, that we somehow have to pay the price of a hundred people dying every day from gun violence because we have a second amendment. And the reality is that none of that is true, that we know exactly what needs to be done in order to save lives. And we know that because states across America have strengthened their gun laws, have invested in communities that are suffering from cyclical everyday gun violence, and have seen significant reductions in their gun suicide rates and in their gun homicide rates. So these models of democracy or these laboratories of democracy, as Republicans in particular often like to point to, really serve as an example of what we need to do on the national level in order to have a standard that fits the entire country. And secondly, we just need to look overseas at some of our great allies who have dramatically reduced gun violence by doing three basic things. By number one, ensuring that gun manufacturers and gun dealers are actually regulated and can't produce incredibly powerful weapons for the civilian market. Those countries raise the standard of gun ownership by requiring gun owners to register their firearm, to get a license to have a firearm in the first place. And they've also addressed the root causes of gun violence, things like employment opportunities, housing security, health care. So we have the blueprint. We just need to follow it. Well, you will hear that assault weapon bans don't help because most murders happen with handguns or background checks don't help, you know, because there's a lot of resales and, and well, it's a lot of suicides. And, but if you spell it out to the goal being fewer guns, if you make that the goal, well, then that addresses all of those things. And it sounds like what you're saying uh, has worked in other places. It has a goal of just there being fewer guns out there. Yeah, the reason why the United States has a death rate that's about 25% higher than our other peer nations is exactly what you just identified. We have way too many guns, and they are way too easy to get. And until our media and our leaders can have the courage, the political courage, to recognize that reality and to begin communicating about it to the American people, it's going to be a challenge to meet the goal of, of saving lives. And I have to say, we now have a president in the White House who has done this work before, who, when he was running for the presidency, released the boldest, one of the boldest gun violence prevention programs of any presidential candidate, who promised us that his experience in Washington, D.C. gave him the skills to work with Democrats and Republicans to get big things done. And so he has a heavy responsibility to follow through on those promises, to address the nation fully about this crisis, and then to work through Congress diligently and aggressively to get tighter gun laws 
across the finish line. Well, let me just bring you back to media for a second. When media tend to move from incident coverage to policy coverage, then then reporting on gun control gets often into this kind of static frame where you hear from, you know, opponents and proponents of a particular measure. They both get quoted. Sometimes they get quoted in equal amounts, you know, but there's this kind of backdrop, which is that in this country, any restrictions on individual gun ownership face an uphill battle because it's enshrined in the law because the lobby is all powerful and because this country just loves its guns. These are presented as blanket impediments to change. But how true is that? Is that really an accurate current depiction of the lay of the land? Yeah, this false balance that you're identifying is that you often see in media stories. This effort to perpetuate really what is a myth about the NRA's great power and abilities and this notion of just regurgitating claims that the Second Amendment somehow impedes us from doing anything about this problem is a real hindrance. I think, to the kind of conversations we have publicly about this issue, to the kind of conversations we have with our friends and families, particularly if some of them are gun owners or more politicized gun owners. And, you know, the truth of the matter is the kind of coverage we need on this issue, the kind of press we need on this issue, is one that reflects the science and the real history. The overwhelming science in the gun violence space tells us one simple truth. Where there are more guns, there are more gun deaths. And that's really it. That's the reality that you have to start from. So any kind of argument about if you have gun restrictions, you're disarming the good guys, or if you have gun restrictions, that means it will only harm the good guys because the bad guys will never follow it. That kind of argument that the NRA has so successfully gotten the press to parrot for decades is a real hindrance. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think we hopefully, hopefully have reached a point where gun violence is so ubiquitous and support for actually doing something is so widespread that we will hopefully see less of this effort to just pretend that, well, nothing at all is possible, right? And, and just a second on the, on the Second Amendment, you know, the, the history of this is, is very intriguing to me because for decades and decades and decades, really up to about 1972, it was hard to find anybody in the press or within even the the gun community who argued that the Second Amendment is somehow an impediment to gun regulation. This argument is actually quite new, and it was developed through NRA-funded researchers and NRA-funded lawyers. They birthed this idea that the Second Amendment somehow prevents us from doing what we know we need to do And oftentimes, the media just parrots that invented notion without actually recognizing that it is certainly not what the Founding Fathers intended, but also doesn't reflect the reality of how most courts 
the Supreme Court to some degree, but also courts across the country have ruled repeatedly that the amendment allows for pretty significant regulation. And so, you know, my hope here is that we can have a different kind of conversation about this issue. That was one of the points that scholar Howard Friel made in an important piece for Extra for Fairs Magazine back in 1996, that media seem to feel they're charting some middle ground when they say, you know, there could allow for some restrictions on gun ownership. And the other point is, no, there should be no restrictions whatsoever. And they kind of chart a middle course. Mm-hmm. Friel's point is they're ignoring all of that legislative judiciary history that you just mentioned, you know, um, which actually says, no, there's no conflict between the Second Amendment and uh, some measures of gun control. This this whole mass shooting thing, of course, you know, after the after the sh- after the shooting in Boulder, Colorado, day before yesterday, and then you know a few days before that in in uh, Georgia, there has been a renewed push to do something about gun violence in America. But it's still, I mean, you know, you still had Ted, Ted Cruz basically filibustering this yesterday on the floor of the of the Senate. Uh, you had John Kennedy, the uh, congressman from Louisiana, uh, talking about uh, drunk drivers. I mean, you know, it, it, it literally. He was like, "Well, we got drunk driving as a problem too. Why don't we do something about that?" Well, well, uh, John, actually, we did. We uh, we require people to get a driver's license so that their car, you know, they know how to run their car. We don't require people to get a shooter's license. We require people to have liability insurance for their car. We don't require shooters, you know, gun owners to have liability insurance. We require cars to have seat belts. We don't require guns to have safety locks. I mean, you know, even the Republican arguments like, like Senator Kennedy's argument, like, uh, well, you know, we have a drunk driving problem. Um, just is devolve, disintegrate into BS. Here's what I think needs to be done. And I'm just gonna lay this out. I, uh, if you want the links and the deep dive and, and the, you know, the, the background information and the links to anything I'm saying here, they're all over, <clears throat> excuse me, on the article that I published today at HartmanReport.com, which is essentially this. Back in 1955, down in Mississippi, a young black man named Emma Till was visiting from Chicago, which is where he lived. A white woman claimed that he whistled at her. Her husband and his brother, as I recall, maybe his cousin, um, kidnapped Emmett Till, uh, took him out, beat him brutally, tied him to a 50-pound uh, cotton gin fan after they had made him drag it across the uh, up to the river, And then after they beat him to death, turned his face into pulp, threw his broken body into the river where it was later retrieved. His mother, Mammy Bradley, made an extraordinarily courageous decision when his body was brought back to Chicago and said, we're going to have an open casket funeral. I want people to see what they did to my, my child, to my baby. Jet Magazine sent a photographer who took a picture of Emma Till in his casket. That picture went viral, particularly across black America 
for lack of a better phrase, uh, across the black community in the United States. But it also broke into the white mainstream back. I mean, keep in mind, this is 1955. There were literally no black people on television except as criminals. But it not only invigorated the civil rights movement and does to this day, it's a, you know, that coffin, you know, Emmett Till is buried, but they, they, the, the original coffin is now a centerpiece at the Museum of African American History in Washington, D.C., which is just, by the way, uh, once you've got your COVID vaccines, you need to get there and check this thing out. It's extraordinary. And, and our friend Joe Madison from Sirius XM, uh, Urban View, I think it's channel 129, um, every morning from 6 to 10 a.m., helped raise that money to make that thing happen, among others. I mean, there's there's a lot of you know great people who worked on that. But anyhow, those pictures or that picture made real for many Americans the horrors of white violence against black people, which have been going on forever in this country. But, you know, the old saying, a picture can, can it tells a thousand words, um, there's such a reality to this. You'd think in America, after seven shootings and seven mass shootings in the last seven days, that America would have some sense of what this means. I mean, we've all heard the words Newtown and Stoneman Douglas and Las Vegas, and we know intellectually what that means. But have you ever seen a picture of a pile of bodies that have been ripped apart, their heads exploded by two twenty-three caliber bullets, the things that are fired out of AR-15. I mean, there's a reason why this guy shot 10, ki- 10 people and they're all dead. No survivors. No wounded. These are weapons of war. But in any case, back to my question, have you seen the pictures? No, of course not. Because the American media doesn't show those kinds of pictures. And there's some good reasons for that. But Back in the 1980s, the anti-abortion movement made the decision, in, in part egged on by the Reagan, by partisans in the Reagan administration, to start carrying around posters that showed bloody aborted fetuses. It turned out actually some of those pictures were actually pictures of stillbirths, miscarriages, or, or, you know, medical crises that mothers had had, but it didn't matter. They were bloody pictures, and they're using those to this day. But what happened when they started using those in the 80s was that by the 90s, even people who were in favor of a woman having the right to choose an abortion, like Bill Clinton, were saying, well, yeah, abortion, yeah, they should be legal, safe, and rare. If you talk to people in the abortion rights movement, they will tell you that when they started using that picture, that was the moment when, quote, abortion became real for Americans. Think about that picture back in 1972 of Fan Thi Kim Phuc. She's referred to as Napalm Girl. She was nine years old, running down the street with a bunch of other little kids in in rural Vietnam, having ripped the clothes off her back because they were on fire from napalm. That picture in 1972 helped turn the tide completely. I mean, even the the hardcore right-wing Republican pro-war bunch, after that picture went around the world and won the Pulitzer Prize, that was the point at which the Vietnam War was really and truly ended. I mean, the, the actual end came two years ago when Jerry Ford ended it, but, but the, you know, there you go. Now, there are some, so I think that, you know, we should be showing at least a picture of the violence of these shooters. 
Now, there are very, this is going to be a very controversial thing, and there are really legitimate reasons to not sensationalize violence, to not satisfy morbid curiosity, and concerns about warping young people's minds or triggering PTSD for people who are survivors of violence, and yet pictures show reality in a way that words can't do. You know, our, our mass shootings in the United States were kicked off in 1966 with Charles Whitman. That was August 1st, 66. And then, you, and then we had a string of killings that happened during the Reagan-Bush administration, 84, San Ysidro McDonald's, Edmond, Oklahoma Post Office in 86, the Luby's Cafeteria in 91 in Kyling, Texas. I mean, we used, I, I can tell you, you know, I, I worked in advertising for years. I used to teach advertising and marketing through the American Marketing Centers. The NRA's biggest fear is that these pictures start showing up. That's their biggest nightmare. And we did this with tobacco. We showed pictures of, of people who half their jaw had been eaten away. We showed those pictures in the 90s. And it changed public opinion. Mothers Against Drunk Driving. I don't know if that group specifically, but we did this with drunk driving. We showed, you know, not necessarily the bodies, but the bloodied remains of mashed up cars. Now, this isn't something that we should just throw up on, on some website or in some newspaper. Major American journalism groups, print, television, web-based stuff, they need to get together and decide which pictures to publish and how to publish them in a way that maximizes their impact while minimizing the probability that they will produce trauma or tr trigger PTSD in other people. This has to be done carefully. The massacres in Boulder, Colorado, with 10 killed, and in Metro Atlanta, with 8 dead, are just two more instances of senseless gun violence enabled by the National Rifle Association, gun manufacturers, and the corrupt politicians they control. Here is a short reminder of some others, for any who might need it. Columbine High School, Colorado, 1999, 15 dead, 24 injured. Virginia Tech, 2007. 33 dead, 17 injured. The Aurora Theater, Colorado, 2012, 12 dead, 70 injured. Oak Creek, Wisconsin, Sick Temple, 2012, 7 dead, 4 injured. Sandy Hook Elementary School, Connecticut, 2012, 28 dead, 2 injured. Charleston, South Carolina, Emanuel AME Church, 2015, 9 dead, 1 injured. Orlando's Pulse Nightclub, Florida, 2016, 50 dead, 53 injured. Las Vegas, Nevada, 2017, 61 dead, 411 injured. Parkland, Florida High School, 2018, 17 dead, 17 injured. El Paso, Walmart, Texas, 2019, 23 dead, 23 injured. Dayton, Ohio, 2019, 10 dead, 27 injured. These are just some of the notorious massacres, each surrounded in time by countless others, with three, four, five killed, lives lost in acts of violence that lack the body count sufficient to join the canon of American mass shootings. This carnage was wrought with powerful semi-automatic firearms, almost all of which were assault weapons. This is why we need a federal assault weapons ban now. Uh, assault rifles, I mean, that's all that does is, is put the mass into, into shootings. 
That's Democratic Colorado State Representative Tom Sullivan speaking on the Democracy Now! NewsHour shortly after the Boulder grocery store massacre this week. Here in Colorado in 2013, we actually um, passed uh, five common sense uh, gun violence prevention bills. We passed the background check bill. We passed um, uh, limiting high capacity magazines. We passed uh, making people pay for their background checks, uh, doing things about uh, domestic violence, doing things about making people actually show up in, some, in front of somebody to get a concealed carry permit. But if, if you want to drive 20 minutes and go into Wyoming, you can buy whatever it is you want and come back down. That's why it is imperative that we get the federal government to partner with us. Tom Sullivan's route to gun control in elected office was difficult. His son Alex was killed in the Aurora Theater massacre celebrating his 27th birthday. When politicians subsequently ignored Sullivan's pleas for common-sense gun control, he ran for office himself. He lost, then won, in a district that had been held by Republicans for decades. In the wake of the 2018 Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School massacre in Parkland, Florida, and absent national legislation to address recurring mass shootings, the Boulder City Council passed ordinances banning the sale and possession of assault weapons and extended ammunition magazines. Just days before this week's massacre in Boulder, a state judge declared the ordinances illegal, legalizing possession of the very weapon used in the Boulder slaughter. Now the Democratic-controlled Colorado state legislature, with the support of Democratic Governor Jared Polis, himself a longtime Boulder resident who said he'd shot many times at the King Super supermarket where the massacre occurred, is considering a statewide assault weapons ban. Within hours of the Boulder massacre, while the victims' bodies were still on the supermarket floor, Republican Colorado Congresswoman Lauren Boebert whose defense of unlimited gun rights borders on maniacal. At her restaurant in Rifle, Colorado, called Shooter's Grill, she encourages her staff to carry guns while working, sent out a fundraising email declaring, hell no, to gun control. The NRA responded to the massacre by tweeting the text of the Second Amendment. Meanwhile, the federal Ninth District Court of Appeals ruled Tuesday that state laws prohibiting open carry of firearms are constitutional. Its 215-page order detailing the history of gun regulation in colonial America and the development of the Second Amendment should be required reading. Quote, the Second Amendment does not guarantee an unfettered general right to openly carry arms in public for individual self-defense, the court concluded. In Washington, D.C., President Joe Biden says he supports a national assault weapons ban. But with the razor-thin Democratic majority in the Senate, passage of gun control would depend on the support of pro-gun Democratic West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, as well as a decision by the entire Senate Democratic caucus, including Manchin and conservative Democratic Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema, to eliminate or alter the filibuster. Gun control legislation will have to navigate a narrow path to become law. In the United States, Tom Sullivan concluded, A hundred people die every day uh, from gun violence. Twenty-two of those are veterans who are dying by suicide. But it also, over 200 people are injured by accidental shootings. A lot of those are children. 
No legislation will bring back his son, Alex, nor any of the millions killed by gun violence in the United States over the decades. But we can prevent future violence with a national enforceable ban on these weapons of war. We've just heard clips today, starting with NBC News Now giving the stats on gun violence from 2020. The Late Show with Stephen Colbert dismantled the nonsense arguments against gun reform. Vox highlighted the effectiveness of gun licensing, a lesser-known reform recommendation. The Rachel Maddow Show explained the utterly broken Senate and its inability to address gun laws. Deadline took direct aim at the NRA. Counterspin explored some of the solutions we should put in place. The Tom Hartman program argued that if the news media would begin to show the real carnage brought about by gun violence, we would see a massive change in political will. And Breaking the Sound Barrier with Amy Goodman argued to ban assault weapons. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from The Takeaway, looking back at Colorado's history of mass shootings, and The Chauncey DeVega Show exploring the real reasons why people kill, and how the stresses, like those we've seen during the pandemic, can exacerbate those reasons. For non-members, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes and are part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find them if you want to make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds, a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's Nick from CA. Just calling to answer a question I think you asked about a year ago. I usually try to listen to the repost, a double speed at least. But if I don't, because I think I remembered it, or I just don't have time, I'm a little behind on podcasts, I sometimes at least skip to the end to see if there's any new commentary. You know, at least make sure there's none in the beginning. Sometimes you'll make a little announcement at the end. Just enough to scan through it. Anyway, I happened to catch you ask questions. said, well, what's the, what's the phenomenon in which someone sort of latches on to an idea, uh, an explanation, a narrative they first hear, and then they sort of double down on that from there on forward. It's harder to change their mind after they get exposed to that initial narrative. And I don't think that people necessarily just glom onto the first thing that they hear, but if they do hear a narrative that explains something and they have no other countervailing narrative or explanation, then it's easier to accept, right? If they just say, oh, well, that, that explains that. There's not as much resistance. And so I think that that first encounter is advantage i do think if you discount it if you if you heard it from a source that you didn't trust you might discount it or put up some resistance but even then you may actually forget the source that can happen you can actually forget where you heard something and still maintain that belief so you could hear something on fox news most of the time we would just discard it but it is possible that you can hear something on fox news and then forget you heard it on fox news and have that be a narrative you hold on to 
But regardless of the case, I think the explanation is once you form a narrative in your head, it's just plainly cognitive dissonance. I think that cognitive dissonance explains maintaining the belief when you're encountering a countervailing narrative after you've established one. So I think that there's two issues here. I think that the first explanation you hear about something is usually advantaged for the reasons I just said. And then in addition, I think that there are probably many mechanisms of belief preservation. But one of them, once you take on a narrative or an explanation and you believe that, then you hold on to it probably just simply straight up cognitive dissonance. So you said in your ma- your voicemail, or I'm not your voicemail, but your commentary section, I bet you Nikki in California will, will answer about this. And I don't think I did. I might have been on my hiatus then, but also for my kid, a little too young and I was a little too emotionally distressed. But also it was... Um, the fact is, I think it's two issues. One is the fact that we have beliefs that we, how we acquire those initial beliefs. And I think that only one component is that the first belief you're presented with, the first narrative on something is advantage. And the second one is just like, why do we maintain that? Why do we maintain belief even when we are given another narrative that's actually better and more accurate, more aligned with reality? And not to say that we don't shift our beliefs, but it's hard, probably through a variety of mechanisms, including just cognitive dissonance. So that's my uh, answer a year later or whatever it was since the first time you posted it. I heard it, didn't know. Now, now I have lots of opinions I think I share. <laughs> All right. Stay awesome. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to Nick for finally getting back to me. Uh, Nick from CA today. I think that's a first. I mean, he's only been listening for more than a decade, and and uh, I, I don't I don't know that I've ever heard him refer to himself in any way other than Nick from California. But maybe he's in a rush today or something. I can completely appreciate that Nick's young kids are probably preventing him from doing the the deep dive research that this topic really deserves. So no sweat. I've done it for you, Nick. I finally got around to looking at, I guess I just went to a giant list of cognitive biases and figured out which one sort of fit the bill. Because, you know, like Nick, I was I was just sort of trying to come up with terms on my own, you know, first information preference or the phenomenon of the initial idea stickiness or something. Here's the closest thing that I think describes this. And it's it's actually a concept I'm familiar with. It's called anchoring or alternately focalism, but we'll stick with anchoring. And whenever I have thought about anchoring, I think of it in terms of numbers. So for instance, if I tell you that I have a special donut to sell you and they cost $100, but I tell you what, for you, I'll give it to you for 50. I set the anchor at 100. And even if you still think like, I don't know, a $50 donut sounds expensive. 
there's a major part of your brain that just sparked and was like, wow, only $50? That's that's like half off. What a cheap donut. So that's the cognitive bias of anchoring. It works really well with numbers, which is why any late night infomercial will tell you that something costs five times more than it really does. And then as the minutes tick by, they will subtly reveal that no Actually, we're going to give you three times as much as we said before, and it's going to cost one-fifth of what we said, and now how could you not buy it? It's so cheap because they used anchoring against you. So here, here's the just the first sentence of what Wikipedia says about anchoring. It says, it's a cognitive bias where an individual depends too heavily on an initial piece of information offered, considered to be the anchor to make subsequent judgments during decision-making. So it is focusing on decision-making, but I think it is the closest thing I could come up with to describe the same phenomenon that when you have a piece of information, it's, it's a new piece of information that you have on a topic, you didn't have any information before, and now you have this one piece that becomes your anchor, and then the decision that maybe is being made is whether or not to stick with that judgment, stick with that piece of information, or to discard it in favor of something else. So another concept that Nick actually touched on is, is that it's really hard to get someone to move away from their initial opinion unless you have something really good to put in its place. That's sometimes referred to as the sort of table leg phenomenon. If you're going to take a table leg away from a table, it's going to collapse. And so that doesn't work. The only way to keep a table a table when you take away a table leg is to replace it with something else. And the same happens with people's perception of information. If you're going to tell someone that something they believe is wrong, you had better put something in its place to fill that gap. Otherwise, they'd prefer to stick with the wrong information. And this actually harkens back to sort of a funny comparison that I think I've made more than once over the past decade, but because I, I always just remember this from when I heard it, the author of a parenting book, I, I think the book was How Not to Kill Your Baby. It's a sort of parody comedy parenting book. But when doing an interview, the author said, my biggest piece of, uh, of parenting advice is if you're going to read a book about parenting, then read half a dozen books about parenting. And the point is that if you only read one book about parenting, then that's your only frame of reference, and you will latch onto that as though it is gospel. And if you only read two books about parenting, then the first one you read is going to get preferenced and the second is always going to get compared to the first. And you're going to think of the second with a little bit of a uh, little judgment, little uh, little hesitancy. There's going to be some suspicion. But by the time you read half a dozen parenting books, you realize that they're all a mixed bag. They all come with good advice and bad advice and everything in between. And then you can kind of pick and choose what you like. But the preference for the initial one fades away. Now, the second bit is is uh, interesting. I, it's separate, but I, I found it while I was looking at the list of cognitive biases, and I came across the cognitive bias called conservatism bias. 
And Nick actually touches on this too. He, he didn't frame it in terms of conservatism, but it's sort of related to the concept of anchoring, but maybe is more broad. And conservatism bias refers to the tendency to revise one's beliefs insufficiently when presented with new evidence. And I would argue that this is not something that is only applicable to political conservatives, but it is a cognitive bias which impacts everyone to some degree because when you have your own way of thinking, it is hard to get you to update your understanding of the world with new information because you're always going to be a little hesitant about that new information. Is it really trustworthy? But I do think that that explains, and I'm pretty sure we talked about this to some degree on the most recent bonus show for members, so that they'll have heard me talk about it at greater length. I do think that this goes a long way to explaining the differences between liberals and conservatives, that a person's ability to integrate new information and update one's beliefs has a huge impact on whether they are liberal or progressive and sort of more forward thinking and willing to embrace change, or whether they are not willing to update their previous beliefs, even with new evidence, and they end up a little bit stuck in the past, which we call conservatism. And now, finally, just this last point is a really interesting thing that I heard about recently. On the media, did an episode, I think several weeks ago now, about extremism, but I only caught up on it recently. And this isn't about replacing someone's idea that they already have, but it's actually a strategy to undercut conspiracy theories, which often lead to extremism, which is why it wasn't part of that show, and undercut them by getting to people first. And it's a bit of an inoculation phenomenon. You get to the person first who is maybe likely to be targeted by any particular given conspiracy theory, and you explain that conspiracy to them. And you say, look, look, I know you haven't been converted to this, you don't believe in this, but people like you have been targeted by this conspiracy theory, and they have bought into it. And so we want to explain to you just what it is, just so you can be on the lookout for it. And you don't, you don't have to give them a big seminar, you just explain the basic tenets. And what ends up happening is that people like that who you warn about a conspiracy theory will go on to fight against the conspiracy theory more forcefully if they've been exposed to it with that explainer than if they are just a person who comes across it and doesn't believe it. Because I, I, I suppose that if you tell them, like, you're being targeted, people like you are being targeted, then they can see themselves as a bit of a guardian for, for themselves and those like them. And it, it actually creates, <laughs> to, I guess, to extend the metaphor, white blood cells who go out and actually attack that virus, you know, more than they would otherwise. So I just thought that was another really interesting example of how we integrate or don't integrate new information, or how we inoculate ourselves against bad information, and so on and so on. Um, 
Anyways, anchoring. That's the answer, Nick. Anchoring. That is the idea of the first purse of information you get being privileged over subsequent pieces of information. I'm glad it only took us a year and a half to get that squared away. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic design, webmastering, and so on. And, of course, thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support, as that is absolutely how the program survives. And now everyone can earn rewards and support the show just by telling everyone you know about it using our referralmatic program at bestoftheleft.com refer. So please check that out. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.